Welcome to my podcast, Coach G, Transforming Athletes and Purpose-Driven People. The goal of my show is to inspire rugby players, athletes and everyday people so that you can chase your goals, overcome those obstacles, turn your vision into a reality. I'll be inviting unbelievable guests in the world of sports as well as the corporate space, sharing their tools and their knowledge on performance, mindset, mental resilience and entrepreneurship. I am your host, Coach G. Gertrude Stienkamp. I'm a former international rugby player and World Cup winner with South Africa in 2007. I've been retired since 2017 from the game of rugby and today I'm a professional rugby and scrum coach. I am passionate about helping rugby players improve their performance on the rugby field as well as front row rugby players to dominate the scrum. Another passion of mine is to help people develop mental resilience so that they can transform physically, mentally and emotionally. And every single week I'll be launching two new episodes. On Tuesday it will be a Q&A interview with an unbelievable athlete or a specialist in the corporate world. And on Fridays, it will be my solo episode where I'll be sharing my knowledge and experience in elite sports, but also life in general. Hi guys, Coach G here. Welcome to my new podcast show. I'm really looking forward to chatting to my guest today, former international rugby player, World Cup winner, the man that's faster than a cheater, Brian Herbana. This guy has achieved some great things on the rugby field. But the thing that stands out is his humility, what he does for those around him, inspiring people, doing a lot of things for his community. Brian has won the World Cup with South Africa in 2007, Super Rugby in 2007 and 2009 with the Bulls, if I'm not mistaken. And then he's also won the Tri-Nations, British and Irish Lions Series. And he won the top 14 and the European Championship with Toulon. Brian, my brother, how are you doing? Good to see you, my man. Yeah, good, buddy. Thanks for that uh, pretty cool introduction. Um, it's been a while since uh, I've been in France. Uh, good to see you dominating and, and picking things up nicely over there. And good to be chatting. Oh, awesome stuff, man. It's so good to see you looking young, man. I'm glad to see you still have your hair. <laughs> so that's quite important for you. I think it's very important seeing you doing so many things on telly at the moment. Brian, um, I asked you to join us today, you know, just to have a great chat and just to talk about some of your highlights in your career, but also sharing a, a message of inspiration for the people out there. You know, it's been a crazy year. We've all experienced a lot of challenges. For some of us, it's been personal, emotional, financial. It's been the battle of our lives. How has your life been over the last year, brother? If you can just give us a recap of what's been happening in your life over the last 12 months. Yeah, Gethera, um, it's been pretty flat out, to be brutally honest. I have sort of been retired three years now. So sort of in the transition period, like like most, that is an environment you know, that's the biggest narrative. You know, I know the both of us studied sort of in my last year playing at, at Toulon and maybe still continue playing a little bit more. Um, trying to prepare myself for life after. And I think, you know, the biggest uncertainty is exactly what to be doing. You know, I think professional athletes, we do get extremely spoiled and we do get extremely comfortable, not only with the paycheck, but, you know, the lifestyle that professional sport does give us. And yeah, I've, I've been really fortunate post my career. I've, I've started one or two companies, I actually launched a fintech company 
at the start of 2020, two months ahead of the pandemic called Pay Me Now. You know, doing a bit of a yeah, earned wage access model. You know, a year before that, I launched a digital sports marketing company called Retroactive. And then in COVID, we actually brought out a platform for athletes around the world called Matchkit, you know, which has been really successful. So it has kept me extremely busy. I think my wife has unfortunately <laughs> been um, yeah, put to the fore when it comes to making sure the kids are looked after, fed and, and put to bed and taken to school. Because when you launch a company and you're trying to make it succeed, uh, you know, you, you're flat out busy. And in and amongst it all, you know, bar my work with HSBC and MasterCard, um, with the Brian O'Banner Foundation, trying to pivot and, you know, provide food relief to those that have so heavily been affected by this pandemic and what it has caused, in particular in a country like South Africa, where we have such a massive population that is unemployed, uh, that is living on not only the poverty line, uh, but living on you know, pure crumbs at the moment. So yeah, the, the pandemic has had me very busy, but I think the opportunity to be busy, to have started a company, to have continued growing another company, as well as you know, from a foundation perspective, giving back, has seen me be very busy, but busy in, in an extremely good way. So honestly, can't complain. Awesome stuff, my man. Uh, I think um, I think our wives that originally thought the day we stopped playing rugby would be spending more time with the family. And uh, like I'm seeing firsthand, I'm busier than ever. I actually considered coming out of retirement uh, about two years ago because I just wanted some more time off. You know, everything has been done for us in the past. And, uh, you know, we were very, very spoiled, man. Everything was done for us. We're giving, told where to go, what to do. Um, but Brian, you know, I think the biggest thing, you know, the transition, even though we prepared for it, we planned for it, nothing really actually prepares you for it. You know, you're in the business world. You have to go out there, pitch your services and, you know, present to other companies. But I found speaking to a lot of players, when they are done with the game and I experienced this my man I'll be brutally honest with you it was a tough time for me when I stopped playing even though I had my coaching business going I knew what I wanted to achieve but missing that locker room feeling felt like I lost my purpose you know then my sense of identity and it took me a while again to find that feeling of being a warrior feeling good you know did you experience anything like that or were you just way too busy focusing on your <laughs> business adventures? Uh, I think there is a level of all of us having to reestablish ourselves, you know, rediscover who we are, navigate through the uncertainty that is now not the comfortable lifestyle that you, you, know, you got involved in or, or were fortunate to be a part of you know, for the greater part of 15 to 20 years. There is a sense of missing that that was the sense of camaraderie, team spirit, the banter in the change room, the fighting for a cause, the potential going from the top of the food chain, earning the salary of a CEO to starting off, not at rock bottom, you know, but starting off, you know, because a 15-year rugby CV doesn't really translate into the business world in terms of, you know, if you can't read an Excel spreadsheet or, you know, do a PowerPoint presentation, you know, that type of experience is not something you, you cultivate overnight. So I think there definitely was a sense of, looking intrinsically at myself, you know, seeing where I wanted to go. I think I, I have been, and I'll be brutally honest to say this, extremely fortunate in this transition period, you know, being able to do work for, for Channel 4 ITV over in the UK, you know, become a MasterCard brand ambassador, doing stuff with HSBC on, on the seventh circuit. I, I have been extremely fortunate to be busy. You know, I was fortunate enough to be over in Japan for six weeks at Rugby World Cup 2019. So I fully understand the difficulty that many face, not only from a 
know, physical preparedness, but I think the mental wellness aspect of it all is something extremely tangible, you know, and I get asked quite a bit, you know, what does it like actually making that difficult call to retire? And I'll never forget that I sort of announced it, you know, put it out on social media like we all do nowadays. And I literally got home and it took me like about five minutes as I entered my door, realizing that I'm never going to get it back. And I'm a, yeah, I know we, you know, we talk about the masculinity and the, and the macho-ness in the change room. I actually, you know, took five minutes to cry and saying, deepest keepers, what I experienced over the last 16, 17 years, all that I've ever known is now coming, you know, coming to an end, having to think about relocating my family back to South Africa, um, looking at various opportunities of how, you know, continue providing. So the mental wellness aspect of it is, is, is a scary thing. And, you know, I actually talked about it in the thesis we had to do at the Toulouse Business School uh, in our business unit manager or power core manager course we did. Um, you know, the likes of a Dan Vickerman, who was extremely successful in the transition period, was moving up the ranks um, in corporate and, and committed suicide just because he wasn't able to handle the life that was no longer professional sport. So I am fortunate, but like I said, I think many of us go through struggles of uncertainty, uh, insecurity, because all of a sudden, we're no longer the big fish um, in a small pond. We are now the small fish in, in a very big pond and starting at the bottom of the food chain almost. Brian, thanks for sharing that. Um, you know, brother, I'm always telling people um, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on Clubhouse at the moment, this um, social media platform, which is unbelievable. And I'm constantly sharing there and telling people that showing vulnerability is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. And you just admitting there, you know, it wasn't that easy. And even though, you had everything in place. There might have been moments of self-doubt. And you just mentioned uh, Dan Vickerman. You know, he had everything in place, successful, but he struggled with that. And that's so important that we create awareness around mental health of players, but athletes and people in general, especially when it comes to men. We as men, especially South African men, we are proud. We believe we are strong. But it's okay to have that time where you're feeling down, Maybe you might even be depressed. And it's so important to reach. I always tell people on social media, if you're currently struggling or you're not feeling good or you're doubting yourself, just reach out. Send me a message. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important that people listening today, they need to reach out to someone. All right. We hear this a lot. It's okay not to be okay. And that's why we need yeah. to come together as a human race, I believe. And it's not even about which country you're from. Just support each other. Brian, your transition has been amazing. You know, I've watched you from a distance and see how you've evolved as well on television. You've always been a great speaker, but it's like you've taken the bar to another level, man. You've taken a bar to another level. Oh, so I've, I've put a post of you on my wall. So one day when I'm big, I want to be like <laughs> from when I'm seeing, I'm seeing yourself on your wall, Gertrude. I'm not seeing me. I'm not seeing me. <laughs> All right. It's okay so you... that it's not me. It's okay <laughs> that it's not me. So, you know, Brian, I just agree. I want to finish off on the transition part because obviously you have a lot of things into place. So you, if you could maybe just tell us a bit about what you're involved in. I remember you remember the website. It's called MatchKit. Can if you give, us, give a bit more detail about that? So MatchKit.co, we launched. Um, I was actually sitting in Japan when the Springboks won that Rugby World Cup final on the 2nd of November 20, 2019. And obviously the modern age of all our social media platforms, you know, the TikToks of the world, the Instagram, the Twitters, the Facebooks. And, you know, I, I've always been real tech savvy. So I've always looked at that side of particularly the brand building from you know, very early on in, in my career. 
And I sort of looked at the stream of team and not one of them actually had their own .com website, which flabbergasted me um, through my digital source marketing agency, Retroactive, and, and the, so my fellow co-founder, Mike Sharman. We did a bit of analysis. We sort of sat thinking, you know, in this new age, you know, we have all these extremities and you, know, you have someone like Damon Delendi, who's dudes on Instagram, you know, Damien on Twitter on something different on Facebook and, you know, all these social media extremities, but nothing that's bringing them together. The likes of Asiya Khaleesi, who's probably one of the most high profile players in world rugby at the moment, not owning his own dot-com website and that dot-com website being sold for 1.2 million rand. Um, and, you know, we just looked at this and, you know, through COVID and it probably got accelerated through COVID, but looked at giving plat a platform to athletes that showcases their own not only social media extremities and brings everything onto one platform that's easy to use, but showcase who they are, what their talent is, potentially give them an opportunity to commercialize or monetize. So, you know, creating garments um, with their own brand logo or logo of sorts on, and as well as raising funds for a foundation. You know, I, I went through the whole fundraising process, you know, since 2015 for the Brian Havana Foundations and Building back-end API payment integrations into, you know, into a website is, is something not many athletes are going to be able to do or understand the intricacies of that. And you know, to be able to give them a you know, really simple platform that accepts payments. We've just gone through something now with the SA men's hockey team who have qualified for the Olympics, who needed to crowdfund. You know, and all of a sudden, MatchKit gave them that opportunity without them having to stress about you know, how the payment actually happened. So... Yeah, it's, it's been pretty cool. Well-received. You know, we've got the USA Olympic swimming team on board. We, we have the South American Rugby Federation um, on board as well. We've got over 600 athletes. We've just, you know, passed into the, the alpha code, you know, second, uh, second tier now, which is sort of a shark cage type experience. So a great team with myself, Ben, um, you know, and, and Sharka that are really trying to create a, a platform for athletes to showcase themselves. You know, particularly in a world where, you know, last year, you know, school sports in South Africa, and you know how important Craven Week and your first team rugby year is, and all of a sudden, you know, these matric or, or grade 12 pupils weren't able to showcase their own abilities. So giving them that platform where they can embed a YouTube link, um, you know, and then have that potentially be something that they can pass on to agents from around the world. So, yeah, it's, it's been exciting and using my past experiences of, understanding brands you know what it's needed when you're a professional rugby player and you potentially get a player of the match or man of the match award you know you can't go rattling off and thanking all your sponsors um you know and so for the match kit we, we've allowed athletes to to do that and and bring everything to, together and holistically showcase who exactly that athlete is which i think has been phenomenal in terms of what the uptake has been Brian, that's amazing. Uh, I think it's. A, I had a look at Match Kit. It's unbelievable. I think it's so important for rugby players and athletes today to know to be conscious that they are a brand. You know, not just role models. And you were way ahead of the game. I remember when you were taking photos with your GoPro. We were making fun of you. <laughs> you know, this man's crazy. And uh, I think now I'm just as present as you on social media. I think it's so important if you want to generate something for life after your career. It's important to take care of your brand and to make sure that you are showcasing the values that you stand for, because this is will attract other brands as well. What would your advice be to professional rugby players or athletes at the moment, you know, in terms of bolding their brand, what should they be doing? So I think, you know, one of the first steps I, I tell a lot of up and coming youngsters is, 
first and foremost, decide who you are. Um, you know, don't look at the rest of the world. And again, don't compare yourself with what's happening on social media. Don't compare, compare yourself with yourself. You know, go and look at yourself in the mirror. Look at what you want to achieve. You know, someone like Skulk Berger has no social media platform of any sort. Does it take away anything from the man that is Skulk Berger? No ways. Um, you know, and that's what his preference is. Uh, he's working with the likes of a DHL. You know, he's on Supersport and talking brilliantly. And if you can add value without having to, you know, splash out on social media, you don't have to have social media. Yes, companies nowadays and brands nowadays look at the data analytics and insights from engagement, fan, you know, fan following, you know, on, on the various social media platforms. And yes, it does play an important part. But I think what everyone is looking for in the world is a little bit of authenticity. And, you know, I tried as, as best as possible to understand that I was extremely blessed with a gift from God to be able to live out my passion and my dream for as long as I did. But I think like yourself, you know, we've tried at the best of times to understand that rugby played a big part of your life, but that it shouldn't potentially be your life, which I think, again, is, is always a, a difficult thing to balance. But like I say, it's, it's understanding who you are, understanding what type of values you want to portray to the public world. And, you know, as soon as that happens, you got to know that once you put it out there, it's there forever. And like I say, you got to live with the consequences, but look into the mirror, understand what you are, understand what you want to achieve. Um, and then potentially align with brands that, you know, look at those similar values because, you know, to now try replicate or assimilate yourself to something that is not with inside you, you know, becomes very difficult to authentically come across. Thanks, Bonner. I think that's so insightful because a lot of uh, athletes, when they hear about building your brand, they're like, oh, social media. And that's an unbelievable example about Skulky. You know, he has always showcased what he's always, always been authentic. And it's just about showing your true self. That's very important. But brother, I know we can geek out about this for ages, you know, and uh, just hearing the way you speak as well, you can hear clear evolution in terms of how you've made that transition from an athlete to a business owner today, which is quite great. Brian, I want to touch base. I want to go all the way back to where it started. Yeah. And um, we, we were fortunate enough. I remember in 2004, our first Springbok tour together, we were still young bloods. And at that stage, I remember we weren't even focusing about getting a test match because we knew chances were not very high that we would play. We were more worried about getting the latest PlayStation, if I'm not mistaken, going and walking around. About it was the slimline PS2 that had come out. I'll never forget. It was, it was pretty cool. <laughs> over, over in Cardiff that first, that first week. I remember that, man. Brian, you got selected um, as a sub against England. First touch of international rugby you scored a try. Can you relive that moment for us? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's pretty epic. It, it's quite a long time ago now, so I can't physically re relive it, but um, it lingers on, you know, vividly in my mind. Because I get asked a lot, you know, what, what was the best moment in your life? Was it winning Super Rugby? Was it winning a World Cup? Was it beating the British Mouth Lions? You know, breaking or equaling John Loma's record, uh, you know, becoming the highest test scorer of all time. And I tell people, that the time I got to pull on that Springbok jersey for the first time ever, and I got to not only taste the inspiration of this dream that had been installed in me back in 1995 when you know the Springboks won that epic, iconic Rugby World Cup, but that moment of understanding the privilege, understanding the honor, but also understanding the responsibility that came with it of 
you know, of physically tasting how incredible and how amazing that was. It was a pretty fairy tale start to score a try with my first touch of the ball against the then world champions, England at the home of rugby Twickenham. Probably could have been better if we weren't absolutely mutilated by England that day. We were properly beaten. But it just gave me a sense of wanting to not let go of this opportunity. And again, I didn't grow up underprivileged. And I got given great opportunities by my parents. So I looked at this opportunity of now representing my country, of representing myself, my family, representing everything that I stand for. And I just never, never wanted to let it go. And I tell everyone that was probably the most important part of my career, you know, getting to taste that and, you know, being in an environment where I was learning from the Osteurans, the Brayton Forces, the Percy Montgomery's, you know, absolute legends within Springbok history and letting me understand what it is to actually be a Springbok, what the, the meaning of a Springbok actually is and how you then, you know, showcase and portray yourself post that. And, you know, that moment made me want to do it five, 10 20, 50, potentially become the first player of color to do it a hundred times. And without that moment, without tasting what it's like, you know, it would have been very, very different. So I tell everyone, you know, the, the 20th of November, 2004 was, was a very special day for me. Awesome, Brian. You know, when you're sharing that story about your debut as well and uh, your first test match, it's just unbelievable. I remember playing at Edinburgh as well, Scotland. I think that was our first start. Uh, for the Springboks, but we were very fortunate. We had great players, Percy Montgomery, David Barry, Maurice Hubert, John Smith, Victor Matfield, Bucky's, Donnie Rousseau, so many great players. You know, we were surrounded by great players. And I always remember Jean, you know, especially towards the end, he kept on insisting the players, guys, whenever you wear that Springbok jersey, you always got to put the jersey first. And you were just referring back to 1995 World Cup. I remember actually watching the final. I was in Cape Town. And that's the moment I knew I would love to wear that. That's when it became a dream to become a Springbok. Yeah. And I think when it happens, you know, you get overwhelmed with so many things. But there do come times that, I won't say you, you take it for granted. You believe it's your right to be there. And it's not. You know, that's borrowed time. That jersey does not belong to you. That jersey belongs to South Africa. It belongs to the country. You know, Brian, you have worn that jersey so many times. And a lot of people asked me, you know, gee, when you sing the national anthem, what's going through your mind? Can you take us through that moment when you are singing the anthem? Was there anything in particular that was going through? You were just blocking everything out? Or I used to visualize certain stuff, you know, I used to... Mm see my grandparents, for example, weren't there with me anymore, who played a massive role in my life. So I would close my eyes and visualize them and see them smiling, sitting in the crowds. And that would just, and it's just giving me goosebumps right now. Was there anything in particular when you would sing the anthem? Because I think that the first point um, of becoming a Springbok, and like you rightly said, you are just a custodian of that jersey for a time. And I'm, you'll also remember, you know, Jake White said that you got to leave the jersey in a better place than, you know, than what you received it. And you know, I think we all go out with that mantra. We all go out with that mentality and we hope that we do it right. We don't always get it wrong. We are human. You know, the microscope is constantly on our lives for not only that 80 minutes, but for everything outside of the field that you do as well. I think for me, singing the national anthem, it varied over the course of my career. I think in the beginning, I just couldn't believe I was standing there, uh, you know, trying to take it all in. I, I don't know if you remember, but Jakob van Vesthuizen was pretty loud with that um, when the Scottish anthem got sung uh, in, in 2004. 
it was a sort of a half empty stadium and you know he was pretty vocal about the, how exactly we're going to impose ourselves on the Scottish that day. But what I do is I, I just close my eyes. I think there definitely was a visualization of understanding all the work, effort and preparation that I put in of taking in the privilege that I was able to to stand there representing my country. You know, sometimes I'd sort of open and, and see if I can identify a family member if I knew they were there. But it was it was purely about embracing the privilege that I got. And I nine times out of 10 closed my eyes because it was my time. It was my space. It was my opportunity to just maybe look up and say, thank you to God for this opportunity. It was my opportunity to understand the privilege that has just been bestowed upon me to be representing a country of 45, 50, 60 million strong. And again, you, you never know when it's going to be your last. And we had that said quite a bit, you know, throughout the course of, of our careers to us. And I just try to live in the moment as, as much as possible. Yes, there was a bit of a visualization about the game, about what you've done, but it was just taking it all in because that moment is so special. That moment is so personal for each and every player that you need to be you and you need to own that moment because you know you've you've sacrificed your family your friends your loved ones have sacrificed so much for you to be in that position so sometimes there were a lot of nerves sometimes there were tears um you know sometimes there was a lot of calmness but all the time there was just an overwhelming sense of pride yeah, Brian, you're, you're just taking me back there. Um, you're getting me all emotional here. <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, it's great to look back at those moments and I could I can see when you're speaking that you're actually reliving. I think that, and that's the great thing, you know, cherishing those moments. You know, it might be over. We are now on a different path, different journey, but we were so blessed to experience those great memories and to play in those stadiums. It was it wasn't our right, you know, like I said, that time was just borrowed to us. We were representing something greater. So, Brian, I get asked this a lot. A lot of rugby players are constantly asking me like, so, gee, how can I play professional rugby? You know, how can I make? And I said, guys, it's not that simple. You know, it takes hard work. It takes dedication. It's actually someone needs to give you the opportunity. You can be the best player in the world. You are grafting. You're going to the gym, doing everything which is necessary. But someone still needs to give you the opportunity. So, Brian, you were always outstanding um, as a rugby player in the sense of your off-field training. You were always willing to go the extra mile. Uh, I do believe you were one of the first ultimate professionals in South Africa. And I mean this as a compliment because you always did your extras. You always worked. I remember you were working with Dr. Cheryl Calder with your eye skills, your peripheral vision. And you were always ahead of the game. And that's no surprise that you were one of the best in the game of rugby. Could you share with Thank us you, some of the extras that you did to help yourself to be the player that you were? Because <laughs> they said that the harder you work, the luckier you get. And again, you know, Gary Player said those famous words. And I know exactly how true it is because there are so many that work incredibly hard. There are so many that sacrifice and dedicate themselves and put in the hours to try make a dream a realization. Unfortunately, there's only a very small percentage that actually do have that dream become a realization. And I'm extremely grateful for the likes of a, and I also get asked quite a bit, you know, who was my best coach? And I'm like, well, 
what do you subjectively measure best on? You know, is it Jake White winning a World Cup? Is it Peter de Villiers beating the All Blacks in New Zealand twice? You know, beating the British and Irish Lions, winning a Tri-Nations, Heineke Meyer becoming the first coach from South Africa to win a Super Rugby competition. Um, so it's all very relative. And I tell everyone, I didn't have a best coach because each and every coach played an incredibly integral role in who I became, not only as a player, but as a person. And without them selecting me, without them backing and supporting me, um, when at times it wasn't going well, you know, 2006 when Jake White was under so much pressure and the Springboks weren't doing well, 2008 when you know, Peter de Villiers came in, 2010 I was having an horrendous season form-wise and Peter de Villiers still backed me. You know, Heine Kamei could have easily selected Bjorn Basson when he got his tenor in, in 2012 and, you know, still believed in the, the ability that I had. So, yeah, I honestly think that I'm extremely lucky. I do think that, again, each and every player, you know what your own strengths and weaknesses are. I think it's also incredibly important to have people around you that can be positively critical, uh, but people that know you, people that understand you know, what needs to happen for you to constantly be improving. And I was fortunate to have that in my corner. And I think that sort of helped me to understand I mean, Jake White, I'll never forget when we sort of got taken into the under-21 enlargement group at the end of 2003. Um, I sort of just moved to center, but I was an extremely skinny young boy. And we came together at the, the high performance center, the HBC in Pretoria at Tikis. And he sort of looked at me and, you know, my stats in the gym were okay. My pace was okay. And, and he said, listen, if you want to ever make, and this was like six months before, three months before you became the Springbok coach, he said, if you ever want to make it, you got to get bigger, stronger, quicker. I was like weighing 80 odd kilograms. He said, well, you need to weigh at least, you know, 93, 94. And I was like, wow, how do I do that? You know? So again, it was understanding what I wanted to achieve. I never went to gym when I was at school. Obviously rugby was still very amateur, you know, leading up to the early 2000s. So I only really started gymming post-school, uh, but learning things like, you know, fast twitch muscle fiber exercises i mean i've never done you know snatches and cleans and, and high pulls and, and all these things so again it was sort of seeing body specific what i needed to do um you know increase my speed constantly work on my speed you know cheryl calder with the, with the igym program was something you know a lot of players got frustrated with but i actually found a huge amount of value in because you know, as the one muscle that takes in all the information that we process if you can make that muscle work and act quicker you know surely you would be better you know better suited to you know to being in the moment and really living in the moment quicker than everyone else so there were various things um you know coming back from injury making sure that you appropriately rehabilitated yourself so many of us just want to get back on the park as quickly as possible and, and lay it all down but you know you actually can maybe even set yourself back further you know if you come back too quickly and don't appropriately you know rehab yourself so there were many things. Um, and again, it was for me what I found worked. Um, I, I'll be the first to say I was horrible nutrition-wise and probably still am. Um, you know, Jean de Villiers will attest to me constantly having a bag of sweets and potentially a Coke Zero uh, next to my bed at night. Um, but I was luckily genetically. And I think, you know, sort of now in the next phase of my life, I'm not training as much. I might need to start looking at how much of those uh, cook sisters I, I carry on eating. But, you know, extremely, extremely grateful for the subtleties that I found were important. And again, what worked for me potentially didn't work for someone else. You know, I love playing golf, but that was just something to take my mind completely off rugby to refocus and re-energize. So 
again, it's understanding who you are, understanding who's, what you as an individual potentially need to do, getting in experts, because as much as we believe we know it all, you know, if you haven't studied for a specific subject or category um, and don't fully understand everything, you know, get in someone that really knows. So I needed to pick up eight kilograms. I needed to go to a nutritionist, nutritionist to ask them, you know, how is it possible? What do I need to eat? You know, is meat, chicken, rice, you know, <laughs> potatoes. So again, understanding that you don't know it all, um, but potentially putting yourself out there to the experts that do and apply that to where you believe you need to improve. Yeah, Brian, um, I think it's so important what you're saying there. If you want certain desired results, you know, consult experts instead of just going on YouTube or on social media and following all we these. We didn't have YouTube back in our day. Too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook just basically came up. That's actually interesting. I remember Facebook when it just came out. Yes. I was actually room... how many Facebook fan requests we were getting in 2007. Uh, we didn't man, worry about our number of followers. Uh, we didn't even care about that. We were just chatting. I actually remember back in the day was um, I was rooming with Francho Stein. <laughs> he was still a youngster. And uh, we were eating pizza in the hotel room on Facebook wasn't good at all you know brian i always used to hate you back in the day because i remember you eating all your snacks and stuff and i was like but i'm doing the same but we don't look the same <laughs> I'm, I'm eating my salad and yeah, this man I is just my parents. <laughs> I blame my parents hmm. you know it takes me back to a story um at uh, toulouse so uh, i played with luke McAllister, which you know very well all right great player and the man like size, you, size of my two legs, yeah. yeah, but the man was like, you guys were ripped. I've never had a six pack in my life. I've had a few back in the day. All right. But uh, not like you guys. And I remember one day Maxi Medar came to me and he said to me, oh, gee, I see you and Luke McAllister. You take the same supplements, but you don't look the same. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brian, you uh, know, oh, man, um, you know, it's so important that, um, you know, players need to understand takes hard work and and what we achieved wasn't luck. We worked, we grafted, right? Obviously, you had a natural skill, you had speed, all those type of things. I had natural strength, but you need to graft it and you need to constantly keep yourself in check. My question to you, Brian, is uh we've all experienced that dip in our careers. We've all experienced massive injuries. There was my famous 2005, 2006 when I was weighing 142 kgs, you know. But, but I would like to hear from you, whenever you experience bad performances or you're in a dip or injury, did you have a specific process to come back? Mm. What would you say to yourself? Yeah, it was, there were many different processes over the course of my career, depending on you know, where exactly I was. And I'm not quite sure if you remember the story that Heineken May told about the little boy um, and his dog who were down at the river and this guy came past on a horse and he asked the little boy, listen, how deep is the river? And the boy said, no, it's, it's fine. Why? He said, no, no. Well, myself and the horse get across it. And the guy, the boy looks at the guy and goes, oh, it's not too, not too shallow. It's probably about, you know, just, just about knee high. And the guy's like, are you sure? He goes, no, no, I'm definitely sure. And the guy goes into, into the water with his horse and, as you're sort of going, it's sort of knee-high, knee-high. And as he goes a little bit further, the horse starts getting lower. And as he gets to the center, the horse like goes under the water. And the guy goes under the water, the horse falls down, and like he comes, he gets off the bank, comes to the boy and starts shouting at him, saying, you lied at me, you did. And the boy looks at him and he says, but I really thought it was shallow because my dog goes there and back every day. Um, and the reason Heineken told us that story is to understand, firstly, where the criticism comes from. 
And, you know, like I said, you know, a lot of the guys used to tell us when we were playing, when you come off that field or you come off the training pitch and you go to your room at night and you look at the mirror, that is where the first level of introspection needs to happen. Um, you know, look at yourself and you know, ask yourself, have you put in everything um, to make you a better player or person on that day? And then, you know, from that you know, analogy that I said, you have the people in your corner that can be positively critical, as I alluded to earlier, that know you, that understand you. And, you know, yes, you do unfortunately need some support at times. And there were various times where I potentially thought I didn't need to do my eye gym with Cheryl Calder or, you know, that I could maybe rest on my laurels just a little bit more because I am Brian Abana. And a lot of the times for me, it was going back to the basics, back to what I found worked for me, uh, but adapting that to the specific period in time that we're in. So if I was struggling in, with injury, you know, making sure that I was properly rehabilitating what is necessary, not just from a physical perspective, but from a mental perspective as well. And, you know, going through the dips and the sacrifices, you know, learning so much more about yourself, but at the same time, learning resilience. And, you know, sometimes you need to have a hard outer shell because, you know, when you're under the microscope and you know, journalists and social media keyboard warriors are lambasting you, you know, you need to understand your own worth. Uh, and in this world, it is extremely difficult. But I think for me, it was sometimes just about going back to the basics, about focusing on the main things, as Heineke Mayo would say, um, but just making sure that I do the small things right, because the more I did the small things right, and the more I continuously did the small things right, this gradually, you know, the improvement would, would start coming back. So again, that, that worked for me. Um, I didn't want to try and make wholesale changes in my lifestyle, but I needed to adapt appropriately to the specific position that I was in and hopefully in so doing, you know, sort of claw my way out, you know, with a bit of resilience. Brian, thanks for that. I think it's so important. We need to be able to adapt. And uh, I remember from my injuries and we all experienced dips in our careers. And what I tell everybody is that it's okay. You go through a tough time, you go through a dip, you, your performance has dropped, but you need to believe in yourself and keep it simple. You know, if you go down that rabbit hole of self-doubt and that's when you spiral out. And we've seen so many athletes all over the world come back from poor performance, come back from bad seasons. It's part of the game. It's going to happen. You can't avoid it. We've even seen guys like Daniel mm. Carter, you know, one of the best fly-offs in world rugby. And he experienced the dip and he came back as well. So I think it's important for the audience listening today that, if you experience a bad season or a bad game, you need to know that you can always bounce back. So, Brian, I just want to go into a, another area quickly because, you know, unfortunately, I can give a lot of advice for players in the scrum and forwards. And I do, believe it or not, I do have wingers that constantly send me messages on how they can become better rugby players. Brian, I don't know much about backline play, but what I do know is you were probably one of the best defenders in world rugby in your position. And could you give some insights on how you became that def massive defender, your ability to read the game, read the tack positioning on the field? I know it's not a very easy answer, but could you maybe just yeah. give us a few insights? So I want to say it's because of the guys inside of me that made my job very easy. I think having the likes of John <laughs> de Villiers, the John Perry was probably you know, one of the best communicators ever. Um, but again, it was an understanding, you know, and go through, I'll, I'll be brutally honest, I didn't always get it right. You know, there were many of times in my career where defensively, 
you know, I was the reason um, that a error was made. So, you know, yes, you score the interception. Sometimes when you finish your career, a lot of the people only look at the positive. Um, you know, they forget the 2006s when we lost 49-0 against Australia. You know, they forget, you know, the the absolute hiding we got in Dunedin um, in 2004 with the Bulls, uh, 2005 with the Bulls. So, yeah, like I said, I always try to constantly work. And obviously the technology and the analysis programs continually kept improving. So, you know, specifically looking at what the opposition does. And for me as a winger, it was incredibly key analyzing, you know, the fly off and the scrum off because, you know, generally they were good keys or indicators in terms of what they would do, you know, how they kick, when they kick, you know, what are the, what are the key markers that they potentially give away uh, in terms of, you know, dusting yourself. John McFarlane also taught us to present something, but do something different. So sort of be up in the line and, you know, make the, make the attack think you're doing something different. And then as soon as the ball gets fed into a scrum, you know, change your positioning. So all of a sudden the fly off doesn't see you in the same position and has to then make a different choice. The, yeah, the hand-eye coordination uh, with iGym and the peripheral vision, I think was incredibly important key in making good decisions, but I also made bad decisions. So again, I don't want to say that was the be all and end all. You know, defensively, I also learned that, you know, as a smaller guy in comparison you know, with a lot of backs and forwards, you know, I needed to physically prepare my body for battle. And for me, that was making sure in the gym that my strength and conditioning work was to a T and at such a level that I was physically able to handle the challenges that, you know, came with having to tackle, you know, 110, 115, 120, sometimes 140 kg, um, you know, opposition <laughs> players. Um, I did play against you once or twice with the Bulls, but yeah, like I said, um, again, you need to look at what you find. So, think someone like Chizan Colby, who everyone said, you know, is never going to make it on the international circuit and is now probably one of the, if not the most exciting player in world rugby that, you know, weighing just over 70 kilograms um, has the heart of an absolute lion, but doesn't do things outside of his control. So, he tackles low, you know, he doesn't try to physically impose himself, but he's brilliant at, you know, jackling the ball and having a low center of gravity. So it's again, finding specifically to your own physical makeup, what you need to do to improve. And, and I can't you know, give out general advice because each and every one of us is unique in, in the way we're made up, in the way we eat, in the way we train, in the way our body responds. And I think that that's really important. You know, I did a DNA test when I was 33 years old and found out that I'm lactose intolerant, you know, after, after 33 years. And, you know, there, there's simple things that actually allow you, it's, you know, in terms of modern day science to understand your body so much more in detail. And I think, you know, if you try to get as much as that understanding to prepare yourself, you know, it becomes a, a lot easier. So again, I don't want to say, you know, a blanket piece of advice that, you know, do this and then you're going to become a springbok because unfortunately it's not one blanket piece of advice that gets people to the top. And, you know, I did what was appropriate for me, understanding my own body, you know, understanding what's needed to make myself better in specifics. I think preparation, though, is extremely key, and that's got to be a non-negotiable. Um, if you go onto a field not preparing well enough from an, an analytical perspective, from an analysis perspective, from a physical and mental wellness perspective, um, you're going to find yourself wanting and doubting yourself on the field. You know, you want to go in to a game, you know, understanding that you put everything in place to be prepared for that. So preparation is key. But preparation is also very individualistic. And, you know, 
players around the world, you know, young, old, male, female, you know, need to find that out for themselves and, and what works for them because what works for other people generally might not work for them. Well, Brian, you actually shared so much right there, more than you actually think. And I think it's so important for all the youngsters listening to make lots of notes and you're going to make mistakes, but you need to learn from them. Brian, I know you got a busy day lying ahead of you. Before we wrap it up, I just want to touch on the famous Lions Tour, which is lying ahead in South Africa. I know you've been uh, talking about this quite a lot. And uh, I'm probably going to speak with my heart here, the passionate man and I am. A lot of people are saying the Springboks won't be ready. A lot of people are saying they didn't play test matches. Last game was in the World Cup final. So what I'm telling people is, you better beware. South Africans are resilient. We are a special breed, all right? When you put our backs against the wall, we will fight back and we will smash you. But <laughs> that's just my the passion in, my, in myself that's talking right there. But on a more objective point of view, seeing that you are watching a lot of rugby and commenting quite a lot, what is your take on the Lions series waiting for us? Obviously, it's going to be different. Not sure yet what the restrictions are going to be, but we're not here to talk about the fans. We're just here to talk about the Springboks versus the Lions. What do you think will happen? I think it's a very spicy competition that we're, you know, looking looking ahead to. The Lions under Warren Gatlin are vying to become, or he's becoming, vying to become the first coach that does not lose a Lions series against, you know, South Africa, New Zealand, and Australia. You know, he won in Australia in 2013, had that epic draw in New Zealand in, in 2017. So they're definitely going to be coming to South African shores. And they got together, I think, last week for, for the first time, the, the, the bigger group that's not playing in you know the current finals of the Premiership and, and Pro 14 um, or Pro or Rainbow Cup, whatever it's called now. So I think you know there's been a lot of international experience for and exposure for the players playing in the Northern Hemisphere that have been included in the Lions. Jacques Ninaba is now going to coach the first ever team of Springboks that he gets to coach against Georgia for two games ahead of that series. The squad just get, got named this past weekend with some, yeah, some extremely on-form players. Uh, you know, you talk about resilience, you talk about, you know, being the backs against the wall. Um, 2019 Rugby World Cup final, everyone believed England were the firm favourites, uh, not expecting to see what happened in, you know, what was an epic final being a South African. Under Sierk Lisi, uh, the likes of Andre Pollard, you know, I know there's now a real question mark around the hard man, Dwayne Thor for Merlin. Um, but the likes of the Dupree brothers, you know, the, the Peter Stepter toys of the world, um, the Evan Etzebets, you know, I think definitely Dwayne would be a loss. But again, I think in the, the squad members that Jacques has put in place, you know, he has got some proper Springbok bulk and power. Um, so I am extremely excited. It definitely, unfortunately, won't be a tour that we all know and love. I think the legacy that the Lions tours leaves is a legacy in the communities, the way they give back. The epic battles on field play a massive part and the touring fans, you know, probably play the biggest, the biggest part, unfortunately, that we're not going to see this year. But from a rugby perspective, I know Rassi Erasmus, you know, director of rugby for SA Rugby, as well as the new coach, Jacques Minobo, would have been preparing for the last 18 months uh, ahead of the, you know, ahead of this tour. So I'm extremely excited, extremely proud to be South African. And I know that, you know, under Jacques and Sia and the boys, they're not going to be taking a step back. They're going to be wanting to go out there and, and do the country proud. And, you know, most of them, and I'll probably choose at least 14 of that Rugby World Cup final team because they all are playing an incredible amount of high-quality rugby. 
And like I said, I think it's going to be an absolute cracker of a series and I cannot wait. Yeah, man, I can't wait. I'm already uh, already putting my orders to the butcher here in Toulouse to make sure that I'm well prepared for these games. And I got all my snacks. The only thing Let's which get you some lack- Boltong Power then, G. Yeah, well, you need to send me some Boltong Power. Bolton. We need I- to get some Boltong Power then. <laughs> I actually had some Boltong the other day, uh, two months ago. I think it was the first time in a year. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was quite, I was I was very emotional when I had that pack of Boltong. <laughs> I miss it. Brian, mm. we've come to the end of the podcast. Um, I would like to just ask you a favor. For all the rugby players out there that are, you know, we're all focused on our careers and you really took the initiative while you were still playing to put a lot of things in place for life after rugby. What would you advise to current athletes right now? What should they be doing while they're playing in order to prepare for life after rugby? Gertrude, it's it's so very difficult. Um, And and again, I'd love there to be a straight, simple answer. I definitely think upskilling yourself because... I think the biggest thing I've learned in this transition period that, you know, a 16-year rugby CV, um, as brilliant as it sounds, winning World Cups and winning trophies and tournaments and playing test matches for your country has a lot of power, but it actually means nothing in the business world. So if you can't communicate properly, you know, if you don't know how to read the Excel spreadsheet or do a PowerPoint presentation, so learning the basics and you know, I was probably one of the biggest time wasters while playing the game. You know, when I had my off time, I was playing golf or playing PlayStation. You know, I was very tech orientated, but that tech orientation actually gave me, you know, a really cool opportunity to now be doing, you know, fintech play, to be doing a digital sports marketing play. Um, but it was upskilling myself. I, I'm very disappointed in myself that I never finished my BSc IT degree at Rao. You know, when I started back in, in 2001, and I was just out of house for the first time ever and, you know, enjoying the life. And again, look back now and reflecting on what could have been. But I think it was in my last year of actually playing rugby where I unfortunately didn't play one game and got to do a power core manager or business unit manager degree through the Toulouse Business School that really taught me some applicable skills that allows me to you know, take this next phase. But it's about a constant upskilling and learning. You know, never think that you have arrived. Um, and again, you you go from being at the top of the, the sporting food chain to being at the top, at the bottom of, of the business food chain. And if you're not willing to to work and maybe upskill yourself while you're playing the game, um, you know, you then definitely get found wanting. I know everyone says, try to find something that you love. And yeah, as, as great as that sound, you know, something you love might not make um, you know, the salary at the end of the month equate to the lifestyle that you have become accustomed to. So, you know, understand that I think one of the big things is, you know, not constantly trying to increase your lifestyle to, you know, to match your salary, you know, try, you know, put a lot, a lot of your money away. And it, it's brilliant to see you know, the amount of money the, the youngsters of today are earning. You know, we earned more than, you know, the likes of a Percy Montgomery and, and Aussie Runt and Brayton Paulson. And you know, the guys of today are really taking the game forward, which I think is absolutely wonderful. But you don't have to constantly be increasing your lifestyle um, just because your salary is increasing as a professional athlete. And you know, try to look after your money as best possible. Try to understand a bit about money so that you, you're not easily you know, affected by mistrust or the sharks out there because you're such an easy target. You know, and in so doing, you know, give yourself a base that you can potentially springboard off of when you actually do make the transition period. Awesome stuff, Brian. Thanks for that. So, Brian, I want to thank Thank you for joining me today on today's podcast and you shared so many golden nuggets and unbelievable gems that have been dropped. And I hope everybody in the audience have been making notes today. Brian, 
is there anything you're supporting at the moment for people in the audience? If I know you are doing a lot of charity work, you've got your foundation as well. Is there any way I can direct the audience if they want to support anything that you are currently doing? Yeah, good. Thanks for that. Obviously, I mentioned earlier, I had to go through the hassles of implementing a backend API payment system into the Brian Abana Foundation website. But again, you know, we're trying to you know create a difference in people's lives, uh, feed those extremely vulnerable um, that are so severely affected by the by the pandemic, um, and try to make a difference in you know communities in and around South Africa. So you know, BrianAbanaFoundation.org. Um, you know, if you want to check it out, check out what we're doing. Um, you know, and potentially make a donation there. I know we yeah we've you know done an incredible amount in terms of giving back and and providing a bit of hope to those where there is little at the moment, particularly in a country like South Africa. So, you know, if there is any generosity out there, you know, we'd love, you know, we'd love to continue passing on the gift of givers um, and those that give financially, you know, make it possible for us to make a difference in people's lives physically. So yeah, Uh We will definitely, I'll be adding that in the description, Brian, so people can go directly to the website. Brian, my man, thanks for taking the time. As always, such humility and you continue to taking the world by storm. Much love and respect and wishes to you and your family. I hope you guys stay safe. Look after yourself. I know you're traveling quite a bit. So keep on spreading the inspiration. Keep on helping those around you. And thanks for taking the time for joining my show today, Coach G. All right, guys. Mm -hmm. Brian, thanks, my brother. And like I always finish thanks up my shows, get in touch, brother. Boom. Well, guys, first episode done and dusted. I really enjoyed that one. I would like to thank Brian Abana once again for joining me on my podcast, Coach G. So, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and leave a review. I would really appreciate it. And share the podcast with your friends. Take a screenshot, share it on your stories, and share it on your different social media platforms. I believe that so many rugby players and athletes can benefit from today's episode. I'm super excited about this new journey on my podcast show, Coach G, and really looking forward to hear more from you. And if there's anything specific you would like me to talk about on this podcast, just send me a DM on Instagram, and I'm happy to see how I can accommodate you guys. Anyway, team, I need to get going and really looking forward to the next episode. Have an unbelievable day.